the scariest edition of the Force 5 podcast. Yes, it's the annual Halloween special, that time of year when the experts of horror come onto the Force 5 podcast to give some recommendations for your Halloween movie marathon. I am your host, Jason Kleberg, and today's guest is horror author Mike Thorne. And this guy knows his shit, let me tell you. His picks have some deep cuts. I'm so excited to share those with you. And in the spirit of Halloween, in the spirit of the season, I've got reviews for both 2018's Halloween and the new 2021 film that's been eating Twitter alive, Halloween Kills. I'm also right now announcing the first ever Force 5 giveaway. I'm giving away a copy of the 35th anniversary of 1978's original Halloween on Blu-ray. Brand new copy, all you gotta do is check the pinned tweet over on Twitter for details. That's Force5Pod on Twitter if you want to win a copy of the best Halloween film. And the winner will be announced next week on the show. Let's talk 2018's Halloween. Everyone in my family like turns into a nutcase this time of year. Yeah, I mean, your grandmother is Lori Strode. She was almost murdered. Wasn't it her brother who murdered all those babysitters? No. It was not her brother. That's something that people made up. Do you know that I pray every night that he would escape? What the hell did you do that for? So I can kill him. Dad, look out! The bus crashed. Mom, what bus crashed? Michael escaped. 40 years after the events of uh, 1978's Halloween, Michael Myers escapes yet again and heads after the one who got away, Laurie Strode. This film ignores every sequel up to this point, serving as new canon starting from 1978, but keeping the same title for some stupid reason. I know that some people have this weird affinity to the Halloween series and are very critical of anything that comes to the franchise. The Rob Zombie remakes, for example, come to mind. And I find that kind of weird because the sequels past number three were all complete garbage. Now, going into this review, just know that I am not one of those people. I like the original. I acknowledge its importance. But it's been like most horror franchises in that there's been good Halloween films and the majority of them are not good. Fortunately, there's a lot to like in this one. The film is very well shot and has some amazing imagery of Michael Myers. As David Gordon Green's first straight-up horror film, I was pretty impressed. Reflections of his mask and windows, all the way his various knives glisten, it all looked really great. A particularly impressive shot of Myers walking down a street during Halloween night forces us to follow him in and out of houses while murdering people. Carpenter updated the score for this picture, and I really like that as well. Jamie Lee Curtis reprises her role as Laurie Strode, along with two other generations of Strode women. I like the trickle-down of trauma present within the, uh, the family because of the events of the original, which happened 40 years ago, and it still haunts the Elder Strode, and that has helped shape their family for many years. Unfortunately, the script isn't one of the film's strong suits, and we get a pile of unnecessary teen drama along with Allison, the youngest Strode, and her friends. All of Allison's friends turn out to be scumbags, which seems a little cheap considering Michael Myers doesn't need reasons to kill people, and we as the audience won't think that someone deserves to die just because they tried to kiss their best friend's girlfriend. I don't think that the end of the film gives Laurie Strode the epic showdown that it teases, which is a bit disappointing, and the final battle doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm fully expecting some backlash with this next comment, but here goes. I don't think Michael Myers is a very interesting antagonist. 
and there's really nothing that makes him stand out amongst his slow-moving, seemingly invincible dummy peers in the slasher genre. I would have liked to see his character evolve over 40 years in the nuthouse. Now hear me out. In the first Halloween, a 21-year-old Michael Myers gets out and methodically kills people. He lumbers around until finally he's bested. 40 years later, he does the exact same thing. What if over the course of four decades, he learned how to duck or even run? Imagine how cool it would have been to see an agile, fast Michael Myers subverting all expectations all of a sudden. As it is, we get the same slow-moving oaf. I also don't understand why Myers appears to be invincible. Gunshots don't seem to phase him, and as far as I know, he's still just a regular flesh-and-blood person. This is where having a quick Myers would have gone a long way. The kills we see are brutal, but they're also a mite boring in comparison to other slashers. Myers is a brute with very little variation to his kills aside from stomping, stabbing, and bashing until his victim is dead. It's believable, of course I say that within the confines of the Haddonfield world, but not flashy. Not necessarily a detractor from the film, more of an observation. He also kills a couple of podcasters, so I feel personally attacked. Just kidding, they fucking deserve to die. Halloween is a decent slasher that looks great, but still suffers from the moments of stupidity that haunt most films in the genre. The third act is kind of wacky, but there are some cool Halloween moments and fans of slashers or the Michael Myers saga in general should be pleased with David Gordon Green's first outing into straight-up horror. It's certainly a lot better than most of the entries in the Halloween series. Now, of course, I watched 2018's Halloween in preparation for the brand new Halloween Kills. We killed Michael. My grandmother set the fire. No one told you. <gasps> told me what? Michael Myers is alive. A man couldn't have survived that fire. Forty years ago, the boogeyman came for us. We are the survivors of Michael Myers. Glory, what do we do? We fight. Mom, our family. We'll kill him. We're gonna hunt him down and we're gonna put an end to this. He is not gonna stop killing until we stop him. If you track Michael's victims, that's a straight line to Michael's childhood home. This one takes place directly after the events of the last movie. Halloween Kills moves the focus from the Strode family to the idiotic townspeople of Haddonfield, Illinois. Led by the survivors from the 1978 attacks, they form a big mob to hunt down Michael Myers. And I'm sure you can figure out how that goes. Just like the Legacy sequel, this film looks great. Unless you watch it on Peacock, which for some reason looked like shit on my uh, OLED. It looked like a poor quality Blu-ray. There is some fantastic imagery just like the last one on display here. David Gordon Green knocks the look out of the park, directing this again, both of the Halloween setting and Myers himself. The half-burned look is probably the best Michael Myers has ever looked. I also really like the score for this film, and again, Carpenter did something a little bit different. The story itself actually steals a lot from the unproduced Halloween 4 script written by Carpenter and author Dennis Etchison. That script really had no main character, instead focusing on the town as a whole, including people like Tommy Doyle and Lindsay Wallace, and how the town has been affected by the 40-year-old tragedy. The same thing happens here, as the film pushes the Strode women to the background in favor of those who survived the old attacks. This film plays out much differently than that script, but elements were clearly used. For example, in that script, Myers loses two fingers to a hungry dog. In this updated series, he lost them to a Laurie Strode shotgun blast. 
There are a lot of similarities, but that script was absolutely bonkers in the climax, which made Myers a full-on supernatural entity who grew his fingers back and then, while being shot, absorbed the power of the bullets and turned into a 12-foot-tall behemoth. I kind of feel like they're going towards a similar thing here by seemingly giving more strength with the more damage he's incurred. The idea of the town banding together to hunt down Myers is intriguing. The hunter becomes the hunted. Unfortunately, they fail, and it's because they're all stupid idiots. Chanting, evil dies tonight! The mob, led by an unrecognizable Anthony Michael Hall, decides that the best way to kill Michael Myers is to stick together. So, immediately, they split up. Fragmented, they incur the wrath of Myers one by one, and in particularly brutal fashion. Younger kids and babies are still off-limits, but everyone else is carved up like a soft pumpkin. And some of them absolutely deserve it based on the stupid decisions they make. Oh, there's a mass killer? Let's go to the old Myers house in a pack of three, only to have the driver say, stay here, I got this, and then get promptly slaughtered as he walks into the home alone. Or the couple who clearly knows that there's a killer in their house, and instead of, like, leaving, they decide to stalk whoever's there with the world's tiniest knives until they're both bloody meat sacks. Even when people are in large groups, they follow the kung fu film formula of attacking one by one until they're all fucking dead. Even Karen Strode, who has seen how hard it is to kill this man, is guilty of this, as at one point she shoves a pitchfork in his back and then just takes it out and walks away like Steph Curry chucking up a three and turning his back to the basket. Aside from a random Jim Cummings appearance in the pointless flashback sequences that, uh, admittedly, looked really good, the best thing about Halloween Kills are the kills. It's by far the nastiest of the Halloween films, as people are gutted in mean-spirited ways like broken fluorescent bulbs to the neck, a knife under the eye and through the brain, a head twisted all the way around, and someone's face pushed in until their eyes pop straight out into the air. Halloween Kills is gory and stupid, and only really serves as a violent bridge to the final act. While the kills are impressive, the story doesn't really go anywhere, and the people who live in Haddonfield all deserve to have their vacant real estate sold for rock-bottom prices. The next installment is called Halloween Ends, and I think that at this point, it needs to. Halloween is the perfect night for scares, but what about the other 364 days out of the year? Let's be honest, most of the time, ghosts are pretty inconvenient and kind of stupid. That's where today's sponsor, the Ghostbusters, can help. Is there something strange in your neighborhood? Something weird and it don't look good? Call the Ghostbusters. Are you seeing things running through your head or have an invisible man in your bed? Call the Ghostbusters. Did Ray Parker Jr. rip off your theme song? Call Huey Lewis. Are you troubled by strange noises in the middle of the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Go Ghostbusters! Ghostbusters. Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you! And I hope you're ready to believe me, because right now, if you call the Ghostbusters and tell them that the Force 5 podcast sent you, they'll catch your first ghost free of charge. That's right, free, my favorite four-letter F-word. The Ghostbusters. Bustin' makes me feel good. Wait, what? Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. Today I am joined by author Mike Thorne, who has written the critically acclaimed books Shelter for the Damned and Darkest Hours, and has a new book coming out just in time for Halloween this October 29th called Peel Back and See. How's it going, Mike Thorne? It's going great, man. How are you doing? 
I'm great. Uh, not as good as you with a, a new book coming out that's super exciting. Peel back and see um, what, what's going to make people want to pick this up and read it before Halloween. Well, I think um, readers can take comfort in the fact that uh, this book is written by a real genre freak. So if you are a, a fan of the horror genre, um, then this, this is written by one of your own. Um, and I think even for people who maybe are not usually into horror, there might be something here to grab onto. Um, it's my second collection of short stories after Darkest Hours. And I feel like part of what I wanted to do here was get a little bit more personal, a little bit more exposed in some sense with the fiction. Um, so Darkest Hours is, is just steeped in homage and love, uh, especially for horror movies and heavy metal music. And that stuff is still in Peel Back and See, but I think it's it's just a little bit, I keep describing it as closer to the bone in a way. That sounds amazing to me, as I'm sure that listeners know, <laughs> I'm a big genre fan. And I've seen, just paying attention to your Twitter, at Mike Thorne writes, that the pre-reads for the book are like amazing reviews. So congratulations there. If you're a, a fan of horror films, and you like films, the anthology style films like the VHS series or Creepshow, those style films. One of the things I like about those is that there's going to be something that you like. And it's tough to get through a whole novel and realize, well, I didn't really like that. With short stories, if you don't like one, no problem. Switch to the next one. And uh, I'm really excited to, to pick up Peel Back and See. So congratulations on the book coming out. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love those anthology films, too. Um, and, and part of what I wanted to do in Peel Back and See, too, was was kind of blend things together that one wouldn't normally assume work together or customarily go together, like just really pulpy horror tropes and imagery, and then also drawing on some of the philosophy that interests me or haunts me that I've been reading throughout my education so i think it's um hopefully there's something in there for everybody that's always the hope primarily you're a horror writer you've had three books all basically horror what are those horror films that shaped you when you were growing up what are some of your favorites that might not make our list today the ones that shaped me um the ones that come to mind always are mary lambert's adaptation of pet cemetery from 1989 um, Tommy Lee Wallace's 1990 It miniseries, that was a big one. Um, The Exorcist, I saw far too young, and it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it messed me up in the best possible way. And uh, another one that I guess might be kind of unusual uh, is Bride of Chucky. I saw at a young age. Ooh. Yeah, I just immediately loved that movie, especially Chucky's attitude in the movie and the visual style. Um, so all of those, when I think back to like 12, 13, the movies that sort of rocked my world within the genre, those were the early ones that, that, uh, gave me the bug. All solid films, even Bride of Chucky. And I gotta say, there are so many people that come on this show and, and they say that I saw Exorcist when I was way too young. And <laughs> I, I think it's just one of those things, you know, it, it scars you when you're little, but then you turn into a big film fan later because of it. It can't be a coincidence. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It, you're right. It does seem to be a thing, doesn't it? With that film in particular, like more than any other. I don't know why that is. Yeah, and it's 
for a lot of people, I, I'm sure it's like the older brother or sister that's watching it and forces you to watch it or you just, you know, stumble in and decide you're going to stick around and regret it later. For you, Bride of Chucky, for me, one of the earliest ones was the original Child's Play, yeah. which is also pretty funny. It's like a moment that I'll never forget from my cousin Chris's house in upstate New York. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, actually, all the all the Chucky movies really like there was a there was a program called Friday Night Frightmare in Canada when I was growing up um, and they would play a double bill. So I think uh, I might have seen. No, I saw Bride of Chucky at like a Halloween party, but I remember seeing Child's Play and Child's Play 2 as a double bill when I was quite young, too, and loved them. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Well, the the purpose of this show, the Halloween special, is to give our listeners some new films to watch for your Halloween viewing pleasure. And just like last year, we're covering movies in five specific categories so that you can have some new suggestions for your October 31st marathon. We switched up the categories a little bit this year because we've talked so much about slashers, so the slasher category is out. And we talked a lot about body horror this year too, so the body horror category is out. But we've got... On the docket, we're going to talk about an exorcism film. We're going to talk about a witch film, which is a new category. We will again talk about supernatural or ghost movie, a zombie movie, and a monster slash creature feature. I'm really excited to get into my titles. I know that you definitely have a solid list as well. And I'm ready to kick us off, Mike. Are you ready to get to this list? I am so ready. Can't wait. You know what's going to happen? Now, as the guest, you get to pick which category comes first. Well, why don't we start with, uh, since we were just talking about The Exorcist, why don't we start with The Exorcism category first? All right, let's get into my Exorcism film. This one is actually a pretty recent film, and I think it's one that will catch listeners by surprise, because... I'll be in, I'll be honest the the cover of this the cover of the Blu-ray looks like something that you would find picked over at the Dollar Tree. It is from 2015 and it's called The Atticus Institute. What I'd like you to try to do is to move the wheel without actually touching it. Try to concentrate your mind. Focus your thoughts. <laughs> Judith was different, though. Can you please stop that, Can Judith? you please stop that, please? We'd really like to continue. It takes place in the early 1970s, and it's the, the movie's pitched as, like, a true story. It's obviously not a true story, but that's how it's pitched. And it's about this Dr. Henry West, who has created this military bunker, essentially. It's called an institute to find people with supernatural abilities. 
And you get a lot of these people that come through and they say they have supernatural abilities, but they debunk it and they, you know, they kick them out. But there's this particular woman named Judith Winstead that comes to the facility. And all of a sudden they realize something isn't right with Judith. She's exhibiting these amazing abilities that the military has plans for turning her into a weapon. So it's an interesting film because it starts off as this kind of it's it's a mockumentary. It's mm. it's all shot documentary style in a retrospective way. You have like talking head interviews and then you have footage a la paranormal activity from cameras within the facility that tells the tale. And I think the concept is really, really creative as people come in and, you know, their powers are debunked. And then when she comes in, all hell breaks loose. The it's kind of a realistic look at what the government would do in a situation like this and and what they turn to when they start running out of ideas of how to contain and control Judith to ultimately use her as a weapon. And that's when the exorcist element comes in. It's. Interesting in the same way that Emily Rose is interesting in that like the the exorcism part is not the main focus, but it's the climactic focus. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's pretty cool. It has a good amount of tension. It's got some definite standout scenes. And Raya Kilstead, who plays Judith, has never been in anything else worth watching. But I think she's so good in this movie. And and I'm kind of confused as to why she hasn't gotten more work after this. But um, yeah, that's my that's my exorcism film. It's called the Atticus Institute. And if you're a fan of found footage movies, if you're a fan of uh, exorcism movies and strong female performances, I think this one's going to scratch that itch. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, I, I had never even heard of that one. So cool. Intriguing. Yeah, and I should check and see. This is just good podcasting right here where we just sit and listen to me type, but I should see <laughs> if it's on streaming here. All right, this one is available to rent or buy anywhere you can find your movies, but it doesn't look like it's available to stream. Mike Thorne, what is your pick for exorcism films? Well, I had sort of a theme going with today's um, picks. And by sort of a theme, I mean two of the films meet this criteria, which (laughs) is the criteria of um, sequels that I feel are often undervalued or overlooked. Um, And I went with the highly divisive and controversial film Exorcist II, The Heretic. Four years ago, The Exorcist shocked the world. Now... The struggle between good and evil goes on. Exorcist II, The Heretic. Um, From 1977. Have you seen this film? I have. It's funny because I just recorded a show yesterday with somebody and this one came up. Oh, cool. Well, uh, it's good to know that there's maybe another fan of this film out there in the world. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's. It's also funny that you mentioned that because one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, Quentin Tarantino, is a huge proponent of The Exorcist 2. Oh, cool. I actually, so you're I, in good company. Yeah, that's. I, I feel like maybe I heard him talk about that on Eli Roth's podcast, but I could be uh, for the history of horror, but maybe I'm imagining that. I'm not sure. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, interesting. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a bonkers film. The plot is... Uh, it's kind of labyrinthine. It's a little bit, um, it's kind of slippery, I guess I would describe it in some sense. 
Uh, Richard Burton plays this haunted priest who is assigned by the Cardinal to investigate Father Marin's death after the events of the first Exorcist film. Um, the church is considering charging Marin posthumously with um, heresy due to some controversial writings uh, of his around the existence of Satan, which right away, I think that's conceptually really interesting. And the way the, this film it engages with the concept of evil through the lens of um, religion, but also in this case through science. And there's this belief that there's like a material form to evil. There are some suggestions that evil manifests in the form of locusts. It's just full of really weird ideas. Um, Regan from the first film is living in New York City with this uh, with a guardian named Sharon, and she undergoes psychiatric monitoring at this strange uh, futuristic institute under the guidance of um, Dr. Jean Tuscan, played by Louise Fletcher. Um, and her, her, so Reagan's traumatic memories of the demon, demonic possession from the previous film are completely repressed. And part of the uh, purpose of this monitoring and of this testing is to help her access the memories. Um, there's this device used at the Institute called a synchronizer, which Reagan ends up using in tandem with um, the Richard Burton character. Uh, and the device helps induce a sort of mutual hypnosis that brings both users um, onto each other's brain waves. <laughs> so there's all this really weird, like quasi mystic uh, consciousness hopping stuff. Um, it's really visually striking. The film is beautifully shot. Um, I've never seen a horror film that looks quite like this one. It has a kind of epic scope. It goes backward in time to trace the origins of, of uh, Father Marin's interests in exorcism. Uh, you have these beautiful sequences set in Africa um, revolving around this uh, boy named Kakumo who was possibly possessed by Pazuzu, the demon from the first film, and who developed these <laughs> techniques to fend off uh, locusts, which are, again, the physical embodiment of evil using a sort of ritual magic. And it gets weirder from there. And uh, the Ennio Morricone <laughs> score is great, too. So, yeah, I love this film. Yeah, to say it gets weirder from there is an understatement. It's, <laughs> it is, like, definitely one of the most bonkers movies that I've seen. And it, like you said, it's really visually striking. The Hall of Mirrors office is yeah. just a cool, like, set choice. It's got a ton of really fun effects. And I honestly think that if this was not made as a sequel to The Exorcist, it would be way more well-received. It's just following up one of the greatest horror movies and the greatest exorcism movie of all time. And how do you follow that up? John Borman basically said, I'm not going to follow it up. I'm going to give you an Italian, an Italian horror film and you're going to deal with it. And I think that if it was just marketed as something else, it would be received pretty well. I think you're right. Yeah. And it's interesting to read the reviews. They're so, especially around the time of release, they're so hyperbolic. And I, I, again, I think it's because people were going in with the expectations set by the first film, which is also, it's just tonally very different. It's narratively mm -hmm. different thematically. I mean, the first film takes very seriously this idea of um, evil as a kind of ontological fact, and it's very sober and grim and grounded. <clears throat> and then the, the second film is so kind of um, exuberant. Um, so, 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think if this was not a sequel to The Exorcist, it would probably have a much larger cult following at the very least. Yeah, I agree. And I guess we can, if even if you don't like The Exorcist 2, you can thank it for being the catalyst for the also excellent Exorcist 3. Yeah. Which uh, they basically came back to the original author of The Exorcist and said, we need to redo this. So Exorcist 3 is also great. Oh, yeah. I love Exorcist 3. I think, you know, in terms of a horror trilogy, to me, it's one of the best because I, I happen to love all three of them. And they're all very different films, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which makes for a, a great triple feature. You definitely will not be bored. No, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> I should revisit Exorcist 3, actually. That's a Yeah, you're right. That's a damn good film. Very cool. So we've got Exorcist 2, The Heretic, and The Atticus Institute. If you're looking for something in the exorcism realm, where are we going next? Uh, how about we talk about the witch films next? All right. Witch films. Another new one on this year's Halloween special. There are a lot of great witch films, and I juggled a couple in my head before landing on this one. Now, I... I tossed the more well-known witch films to the side because I think people on the show expect me to come with some deep cuts and this one is definitely a deep cut. Now in the late 80s early 90s we had this kind of heyday of the erotic thriller with uh, films like uh, Basic Instinct was one that kicked it off, Fatal Attraction, Single White Female, Sliver, uh, just a ton of them and this film, Spellbinder, from 1988, kind of gets lost in that shuffle, which I think is a shame. Jeff Mills has a successful career and a great future. He's got it all. I'm tired of dating. I want to fall in love. Hey, get away from me! Stay out of this! And now, he's met Miranda. You will regret this for as long as you live. You're welcome to stay at my place if you want to. Welcome home. You've never been in love. You're not sure you ever will be. Do you believe that woman? Girl could be a movie star. She's everything he ever dreamed of. I'm willing to bet he's never been quite so happy. And more. Us. I've seen blood running down its walls. You have her. We want her back. I have heard great things about this film from trusted sources, but I haven't yet got to it, so I am intrigued to hear more. This is out uh, available. I think Kino put a Blu-ray out, and it looks looks really good. It was directed by Janet Greek. She was primarily a TV director. She really didn't do anything else after this. And it stars Timothy Daly and a very young Kelly Preston. It's about a Los Angeles attorney named Jeff Mills, played by Daly, and his friend Derek Clayton. They're out one day, and they see these guys harassing this beautiful woman named Miranda Reed. And so he saves her. He steps in. He saves her from her abusive boyfriend. And as they're leaving, he makes these satanic threats at Jeff, but, you know, they leave. Now, He's got her in his car, and she's like, I have nowhere to go, I have no home, and he offers to let her stay at his for a night, and ends up becoming romantically involved with her. Despite, like, all these crazy things start happening since he met her. 
and eventually he she reveals that she's a witch and belongs to a coven run by her ex-boyfriend and these mysterious events happening around Jeff are part of the coven's effort to bring her back home because if they have not done so by the winter solstice Miranda will be freed forever from the coven so it's a race against time it's that ticking clock to see if he can keep Miranda out of the the claws of this coven before the winter solstice happens. It's it's an interesting plot. It's got a pretty great ending, even if you will probably see it coming from a mile away. And I think that if the film was heavier on scares, it would be a massive cult classic by now. As it is, it it isn't as scary as I think it should be, and it kind of gets lost in that romantic thriller pack in in the late eighties, but. I think it's a really solid movie, and Kelly Preston has never been better. It is also, the irony is not lost on me that Kelly Preston in this film is running from this powerful, dangerous cult that she can't escape, which is basically what she's wrapped up in in real life. And um, speaking of her and the Church of Scientology, they actually tried to get, like, everything erased from this movie because, number one, it's about like witchcraft and number two she has nude scenes in it so they want to like scrub the world of spellbinder so pick up a copy now just in case they they somehow win (laughs) oh wow but uh yeah kind of crazy there spellbinder from 1988 also known as the witching hour like when it first came out in different countries it had the title of witching hour but a very solid witch movie that i think more people need to have on their radars it really does sound like something I would love too. I should bump that up the queue. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. Yeah, if you like those those uh, romantic erotic thrillers, this is a, a solid entry into that. Which with a witchcraft slant. Um, I went with a uh, 1968 Vincent Price film called Witchfinder General. You will each be tied in a prescribed fashion and cast into the moat. Only from the pen of Edgar Allan Poe could come such an horrendous tale of terror. The Conqueror Worm, starring Vincent Price in the most diabolic role of his career. Look for the devil's marks upon him. Get on with your task. The distorted genius of Poe creates poetic beauty from pain and uses idyllic love as a tool of torture. Men sometimes have strange motives for the things they do. Have you seen this one? This was almost one of the witch films that I picked. It's so, yeah, I mean, it's maybe a somewhat (laughs) obvious pick, but I don't know. I was waffling between this one and Rob Zombie's film, The Lords of Salem. Um, But I actually just recently did a podcast interview about Rob Zombie's movies, and I was like, you know, I love Rob Zombie, but I want to talk about something else. So (laughs) I I went with this one. yeah, it's, uh, I mean, so you've seen it. You're familiar with uh, with the film. Yeah, it's like a folk horror classic. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's Vincent Price at his scariest, at his most menacing. He sort of loses all of his, I think deliberately sheds some of his charisma in favor of this just um, oily menace. Um, he, he plays <laughs> yeah. the, the the title character. Um, who travels around um, during the 1645 English Civil War with this 
brutish assistant, John Stern, they're taking advantage of the social disorder um, happening in their environment, much like we tend to see ideological demagogues do in real life all the time. Um, And I think this is grappling historically with some interesting aspects of um, the witch hunts. Um, But they're, they're preying on and profiting on people's fears. They're traveling from village to village, torturing confessions out of um, purported local witches, and then they charge local magistrates for their services once they have tortured these people enough to confess and say, okay, fine, fuck it, I'm a witch, just stop torturing <laughs> me. Um, so there's also a love story in the film, which is, I think, quite effective, uh, centered on a soldier named Richard Marshall and Sarah, who's the daughter of a village priest, who is facing charges of witchcraft. Um, And Sarah is put in this awful position of desperation where she ultimately offers sexual services to the Vincent Price character just to ease the suffering imposed on her father. Like the film gets really, really dark. And I don't want to give too much away about where the third act goes, but things get so grim in the film. It's it's kind of the first time I saw it, I I was actually surprised at how um, distressing it was, you know? Yeah, it really is a folk horror classic, and it's uh, rightfully so. It's gory. The torture that you mentioned is brutal, and mm-hmm. the Vincent Price like scumbag rapist is. Uh, I, I agree. It's like one of his most terrifying roles. It, it, do you think it might be his best performance? Like you asked me on the right day, I think I'd say yes. I don't know. Yeah, from those that I've seen, uh, and I, I don't. I haven't delved too much, like too far into his back catalog, but it's definitely the scariest role that I've seen. And mostly because it's so real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think Vincent Price very strategically uses that um, strange charisma um, in his other films beautifully. But I love that he kind of sheds that in this film and again, just fully becomes this despicable despicable character he's almost like an embodiment of evil it's cool because he and his assistant they're like they're different forms of evil in a way his assistant is just like this roaming id he just takes what he wants and he's brutish and brutal whereas vincent price's character is is more kind of um cunning and manipulative uh so yeah i love the witchfinder general it's so so good his subdued like calm confident nature is just eerie (laughs) in this movie yes and again the cinematography too Uh, yeah gorgeous yep yeah so that was witchfinder general from 1968 i believe severin either put this out or is putting it out they have a folk horror box set that's coming soon and i i want to say it's in there Spellbinder is out on Blu-ray, so seek both of those out, Spellbinder and Witchfinder General. Uh, let's see. Let's roll into, gosh, which which category do I feel pretty strong about? All right, we'll go into my zombie film. We'll go to the zombies. Love it. There are, oh gosh, I've just seen so many good zombie movies lately. I just rewatched like Dawn of the Dead, which is a classic, Train to Busan, which is a classic, but... In most zombie films, they're like bigger in scope with tons of extras shambling around and big groups trying to get away from these zombies. And I chose a zombie film that is the opposite of those. I chose one that's very small in scope 
and very personal. And this is a, it's the newest film on my list. It's from 2018. And it's a French film called The Night Eats the World. You made it through everything. You probably thought you'd drop dead peacefully in your sleep. And then, this happens. Anyone here? Hey! So this film is, is very interesting. The setup is that you have this musician named Sam. He's living in Paris, takes place in Paris. And he goes to his ex-girlfriend's house, her name's Fanny, to recover some tapes that he left at her house. And she's having a party, so, you know, he can't talk to her at first. He's trying to get to talk to her, but uh, she's she's just brushing him off. She doesn't want anything to do with Sam. And finally, she's like, look, the tapes are in the office. Go to the office. And he goes into the office, and on his way into the office, he's knocked out. He bumps into one of the partygoers, and his nose starts to bleed, and he passes out. And then you hear these sounds outside of the office because they close the office door. So he's in there sleeping and you hear stuff's going down. But we as the audience don't see what's happening. And all of a sudden, Sam wakes up the next morning, walks out. Everybody's gone, but the apartment is just wrecked and there's blood on the walls. Obviously, something isn't right. And he opens the door to see his ex-girlfriend, Fanny, as a zombie. And he closes the door real quick. And most of the rest of this movie is spent in this apartment as Sam tries to figure out how to survive in a world taken over by zombies. And it doesn't all happen in the apartment. He does. Um, he ends up finding a way into other rooms in the apartment in pretty surprising fashion. He ends up finding out how to get onto the roof. But it all takes place in this one apartment complex, and it's a tale about Sam living alone, trying to be a survivor. A couple things that make this interesting, the zombies are not like zombies in other movies. They are fast. They are silent. So you never know when you're going to get that jump scare, because there's no indication that they're coming. And they are fast, and they will work together. At one point, uh, Sam makes noise. They are... um, severely attracted to noise so you have to be very quiet but at one point he wonders if the zombies are around and he makes a loud sound and they basically climb on top of each other to try to try to get in onto his balcony so the zombies are really interesting the the tale of sam trying to survive is pretty interesting too because at some point the apartment complex starts to run out of water and he has to figure out how to get water he also realizes that there might be other survivors around in the next apartment building. It's just a more cerebral look at the apocalypse film that we've seen a million times. And we spend the entire runtime with Sam and his struggle to really get out and face the world and until he's pushed to do so. And I've heard in reviews that it was referred to as like a little slow and kind of boring. And I think it can be taken like that if you're going in expecting a traditional zombie film that's filled with gore and these glossy death scenes. To me, I thought it was a refreshing different take on zombie movies. And I think it will especially hit differently now that we've gone through a pandemic. Like this came out in 2018, but 
now when we've all been stuck in the house for, I mean, we were stuck for a better part of a year and a half. So I think this is going to hit differently now. It's called The Night Eats the World. That's my zombie flick. I have not seen that one. That, uh, yeah, so far I'm 0 for 3. So this is great for me, too. I'm writing down some titles <laughs> and building up my own queue. Um, I, yeah, and I love, that's, that's uh, uh, very cool what you were saying about the way the pandemic affects how we think about zombie films. And I think any kind of outbreak film, um, it, it, it has really caused me to think, what will be the role of zombie narratives post COVID? You know, it's, uh, Oh yeah. It shifts the way we think of that specific mythology, I think. Absolutely. Now we've all kind of lived through a version of it. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So that sounds, yeah. Fascinating. The night eats the world. Duly noted. What is next on yours for zombies? Well, I, um, again, I went with a classic, um, I decided to go with the 1932 Victor Halperin film, White Zombie. Um, Haiti, land of the voodoo, comes the most infamous cult of all, Bela Lugosi as Murder Legendre. I see death. Master of the undead damned. The sinister power behind the white zombie. I thought I would go back to the OG of zombie movies. Wow. Okay. I have not seen this. Oh, man. It's, um, yeah, very, very much worth seeing. It's often um, cited as the first ever screen depiction of zombies. So I thought if I'm going to talk about the zombie mythology, why not go back to the origin? Um, and this is actually one of my all-time favorite films, regardless of, of genre. It's so beautifully atmospheric. It's really quiet and moody. Um, it almost has a has a, a vibe similar to some of the Jacques Tourneur films made under Val Luton. Uh, later in the in the 40s and in, into the early into the 50s um so the film is about this couple uh, madeline and neil they're planning to get married in haiti and the film begins there they're staying with this wealthy plantation owner who is obsessed with madeline um and we see this plantation owner meet a character uh, who is fantastically named Murder, played by Bela Lugosi. <laughs> uh, and, and Bela Lugosi has this sugarcane mill, um, which is the site of one of the most haunting uh, sequences I've ever seen in a horror film. The sound design of his zombie slaves running the sugarcane mill, this kind of endless creaking and moaning of the wood is is such a... Um, it's, it's such a sensory treat if you're into that sort of thing. Um, so, so Charles seeks supernatural assistance from this Lugosi character. Um, Lugosi, uh, playing murder, supplies Charles with a potion to kill Madeline. Um, and he says, you know, after which you can uh, dig her up and resurrect her as a zombie. Um, <laughs> so... Things get weird from there. Um, Charles comes to regret Madeline's transformation. He has her body, but not her soul. There are these sequences where he's sitting miserably in this kind of gothic mansion, and she is um, vacantly staring at him. 
um, and Charles begs murder to bring her back to life. Murder refuses. Um, Charles then discovers that murder has also used voodoo magic on him, and he is and transforming himself into a zombie quickly. Um, so the film, again, I, actually, it's interesting. You were talking about a more intimate uh, dealing with the zombie mythology. I would say this film also meets that criteria. It's, it's, it's kind of centered on these very intimate character interactions and the zombie transformations. Um, again, you kind of see them happening to primary characters in the film as well. So yeah, White Zombie, I think, is, is a vital canonical classic in terms of the development of the screen zombie and i'm a hardcore lugosi fan and this is one of lugosi's greatest films like you know early 30s lugosi is just an endless treasure trove of great cinema so all right high praise for white zombie which is available right now to stream on prime and uh, paramount plus so i am going to have to check this out i mean just the description of the the sugarcane mill I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. It sounds like it's right up my alley. Oh yeah, it's so it's deeply haunting, and and also just the use of shadow. It's like um, many American horror films from the early '30s. It's kind of drawing on the the language of German expressionism. Um, so it's just visually gorgeous, and and just oozing with that, you know, Halloween atmosphere. So perfect viewing this time of year. Awesome. I think the probably the earliest zombie movie that I've seen personally, if you don't count Frankenstein, is Night of the Living Dead. So I'm interested to see how the zombies show up on screen in this film. Yeah, oh, for sure. And that's that's cool because Night of the Living Dead, of course, ushers in the modern zombie and is it's it's an original in its own way. It's 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 a departure from how white zombie is dealing with this Haitian uh, voodoo magic and, and things like that. So in terms of like how we tend to think of zombies, I, I, of course, Romero is, he is, he's the guy. So, and night of the living dead is of course a classic masterpiece too. Yeah. Okay. White zombie. I'm going to have to look that up. So we've got uh, the, the subdued 2018 French film, the night eats the world, and then go back in time to 1932's white zombie. After that, we've got two categories left, and I, I think we're going to go with the monster slash creature feature here, just because the supernatural slash ghost film I have is, in my opinion, one of the greatest horror films ever made, mm -hmm. and my monster slash creature feature just can't follow that up, <laughs> because uh, it is uh, it's, it is 80s cheese. It is 1988's Uninvited. They say cats have nine lives. You have only one. How poisonous can. Now how's that possible? You're gonna be richer than your wildest dreams. Yeah, this is one of those video store classics that you saw on the horror section in your local mom and pop VHS store. It's uh, directed by Graydon Clark, who did a lot of exploitative films back in like the 70s and 80s, like Black Shampoo. Uh, he did Satan's Cheerleaders. I think he also directed Joysticks mm. in 1983. But Uninvited from 88 is about these two businessmen. They're real scumbags. They are packing a yacht full of people 
that they're going to sail to the Cayman Islands, and they're looking for a good time as they're on their way to avoid prosecution. They're they're gangsters, and, and they're just, they're getting out. But before they shove off, this cute little tabby cat jumps on board the boat. Unfortunately for everybody on the boat, the cat had been messed with in a lab and, and has a creature that lives inside of it that eventually comes out of its mouth to kill people and then goes back into the cat. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, yes, it's uh, this, this cat stalking people on this boat. And of course, the people in charge of the ship will not go back to shore in fear of being prosecuted. So you are out in the middle of the ocean or really in, in the middle of Graydon Clark's swimming pool because that's where he filmed a lot of the, <laughs> the water shots. But this film right here is the perfect thing to have on in the background while you're having a Halloween party or having, uh, having some beers or smoking a little weed with friends because it is so funny if, if you're in the right mood. It's wild. It hits all of these exploitation checkboxes that me, I like as a genre fan, and I'm sure it sounds like you do as well. Absolutely. The creature is so, it's, it's so interesting, and it, you, you have to laugh when you see these effects. I mean, they are very, very low budget, very uh, endearing in that way, as this kind of smaller cat-slash-gremlin-slash-werewolf thing comes out of the cat's mouth. And obviously it's like a giant cat shell that it's coming out of, but it's just so funny. It's such a good time. There's a lot of gore. Stars George Kennedy from Dallas fame, and he's one of the bad guys on the yacht. And he always looks like he would rather be somewhere else during this film, which I think is another <laughs> really funny part of it. But if I'm thinking Halloween, you know, we've got some a serious zombie movie in The Night Eats the World. And the Atticus Institute, which is very serious. This one right here is going to lighten your party up. It's going to lighten up your your movie marathon, Uninvited from 1988. It's like the perfect midnight classic because you can't sleep through this movie. Oh, it sounds like so much fun. And after ha hearing your description, I would remember that movie. And no, I have not. So uh, <laughs> yes, uh, must see, it sounds like. Yeah, that's my creature feature, a cat, a little tabby cat that turns into a mutant killer. That's a beautiful thing. What do you got for your monster slash creature feature? These are my favorite kind of movies, so I'm really excited to hear what you picked. Yeah, I, I love monster movies too. Um, and this this one, again, was... My following my um, duology of what I feel are very generally undervalued or underdiscussed sequels. So I picked uh, Jack Arnold's 1955 film Revenge of the Creature, sequel to his 1954 film that probably everybody has heard of, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the encore performance of The Revenge of the Creature, the first 3D movie ever broadcast in the United States. This film has received national attention from both the press and television, and it marks what could be a whole new phase of television home entertainment. Now, in order to best enjoy the three-dimensional effect, we'd like to recommend that you make some small adjustments in your set or on your color TV set. Now, we'd like to, to mention also that Time Savers done everything they possibly could to supply everyone who wanted them with 3D glasses. The demand far exceeded anybody's expectations, and the manufacturer worked day and night to supply as many as they possibly could. One other thing I might point out, 
As you're watching the film, looking for the 3D effect, look into the picture, and I think you'll find the dimension is in the depth of the image. Don't expect it to jump out at you. Look into the picture. It's very different from the first film in terms of setting, in terms of pacing, in terms of atmosphere. Um, but I think Jack Arnold uses the Creature from the Black Lagoon uh, character and uh, story as um, a platform to reflect on some really compelling issues. So the film begins uh, with this kind of group expedition uh, out to capture the Gill Man, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, he's captured early in the film and brought to the Florida Ocean Harbor Oceanarium, which is actually just the uh, Florida Marine Land. And it, it was shot on location there. Um, and he's being brought to, uh, to be studied by an animal psychologist named Cleet and a graduate science student named Helen. Um, the film grapples in interesting ways with gender roles, um, especially for a 1950s film, this highly educated woman um, occupying a space that is customarily seen as very masculine. Um, some of the dialogue in the love scenes is uh, might seem, I guess you could say, cringy by today's standards but i think for the 50s you know it's 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 pushing against some of those um rigid roles and standards in ways that i think are genuinely um thoughtful um part of what's especially interesting about this film is the way it focuses on uh the gill man's um at the Gill Man's pain, we're kind of called to empathize with the Gill Man. He's subjected to these inhuman tests in the name of research. Um, he's chained to the bottom of this tank in Marineland. Um, he's, you know, he's cattle. He's given, uh, he's zapped by a cattle prod to test his reaction time and things like that. Um, so the film, I think, much like something like Frankenstein or many other monster films, calls into question where the monstrosity is actually located. Um, of course, we do get some Gilman uh, mayhem. He does eventually break free and stalks the streets. And there's a great scene in which he hurls a college man into a tree. So you get some of that stuff too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and I, I just think Jack Arnold is, a, is um, probably a, a less known name than he should be among genre enthusiasts. I mean, he directed The Incredible Shrinking Man, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Revenge of the Creature, um, Tarantula, Monster on the Campus. I just think he made, you know, a lot of fascinating horror films um, in the 50s. So this one, I, I have a soft spot for it. I, 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 it's one of my favorite horror sequels, and I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. So I wanted to give it some love. I embarrassingly have this and have never seen it. I bought it as part of the trilogy that Universal put out on Blu-ray, and I've never seen it. Did you see it in 3D, or have you just seen the like the flat version? Yeah, I've only I did see the first Creature from Black Lagoon in 3D, which was gorgeous and and really enhanced the viewing. Unfortunately, I have not seen Revenge of the creature in 3d i've never had the opportunity um i actually like the third creature film too the creature walks among us um that one seems to be generally panned but 
again, I think it's, it's, um, it brings novel ideas to the mythology and um, it's, it's kind of surprising. So I like that each of the creature films does something completely different. Um, so yeah, highly recommended. If, and on Blu-ray, it'll look beautiful. I, I still want to pick up that full box set that Universal did, but I haven't yet. I own most of the films on DVD, but I kind of want them on blue. Well, if you're listening, you know what to get Mike Thorne for Christmas now. Yes, please, please. Because the season's coming up. <laughs> I would be a very happy man. <laughs> so that's Revenge of the Creature from 1955. Just looking it up on uh, on Just Watch here, you can rent it or buy it pretty much anywhere. You can find movies or get that Universal Blu-ray. And my monster creature feature was Uninvited from 1988, which Vinegar Syndrome has a really great Blu-ray out of, but... I think it's also streaming somewhere. On to our final picks for the Halloween special 2021. This is our supernatural slash ghost movie. And for this one, I went with what I would consider seriously one of the best supernatural slash ghost films of all time. It might be one of the best written and uh, most beautiful horror movies ever made from 2001. Alejandro Amenabar's The Others. You told your brother there was someone else in the room. There was. Sometimes the world of the dead gets mixed up with the world of the living. This is the father, this is the mother, this is the old woman. And that's the number of times I've seen them. What do you want? They say this house is theirs. Nicole Kidman. Children! The Others. Where is my daughter? If you've never seen The Others, I'm going to tiptoe around a lot of stuff because I think The Others is best gone in cold. It's a it's an amazing horror film with with a, I even kind of don't want to say twist, but it's even if you know there's a twist coming, it's still really going to work and it still really surprised me. You should go see The Others. It's about uh, a woman named Grace. This is played by Nicole Kidman. She's a religious woman. She lives in this old country farmhouse. And it's like this really nice Victorian farmhouse. But she keeps it dark because her two children, Anne and Nicholas, have a rare sensitivity to light. And then the family starts to suspect that the house is haunted. And Grace has to fight to protect her children in the face of these strange events and disturbing visions takes place right around, it's either right around or after World War II. And the atmosphere in this film is just so wonderful. It is so creepy, especially in this Victorian-style home. The children's sensitivity to light has most of the house cloaked in darkness, which adds to the creepiness of everything. You mentioned the shadows in White Zombie. They play with shadows just wonderfully here. I think most people that that are into horror movies will remember that the big deal when this trailer came out was Nicole Kidman walking into a room and seeing this young girl with like a, a veil sitting over her. But that's like the least of the creepy. It is so, so good. It's seriously one of my favorite ghost movies of all time. It's, it's a smart script. It's beautifully shot and the performances are amazing. It's really the only Alejandro Amenabar film that I found myself enjoying and it still holds up today. I, I just watched it this week, and uh, yeah, just just terrific. It's very hard to find. I had to pull out my DVD to watch the DVD of it because I don't even think it's on Blu-ray yet, really? and it's 
tough to find even on streaming. But uh, yeah, so I, I reached into to the binder and dug out my other's DVD to watch it and still holds up. Just a really fantastic movie. I don't want to say anything else about the plot because, again, just just watch this. The Others from 2001. You've got me uh, thinking I should revisit The Others. It's been a while, and it's also weird to think that that film is now 20 years old. I know, I know. It makes me feel so old. <laughs> me too. That's I was, I, I was renting this to people when I was working at the video store <laughs> that I worked at. And I was like, anybody that was that was looking at the horror section, like, rent the others rent the others rent the others yeah it's you're right it's such um the scares are so well designed so thoughtfully designed you can tell or i get the sense that alejandro amenabar you know was probably well versed in films like the innocence and the haunting those early 60s ghost movies it has that sort of vibe um i've only seen it the once um so i'd kind of like to revisit it now knowing the ending uh, and you're right. I, as soon as you said the title, I was like, this is a hard film to talk about if you don't want to give it away. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And I think a, a lot of people were probably put off because if you're a hardcore horror fan, you go in and you see that it's PG-13. Uh, a lot of people probably skipped it for that reason. But I think that is a big mistake because this is a really, really fantastic horror movie. Yeah, and it's it's definitely, you know, it's scary too. And I mean, like, so two years before this film, The Sixth Sense, that was also rated PG-13, if I'm not mistaken. It might have been, yeah. Yeah, and also, I, to my mind, very intense, very effective horror film. Um, so, And the others, I feel like maybe uh, was in some ways part of that there's like an, a late nineties, early two thousands ghost film wave. I wonder if yep, yeah, there was, right? Yeah. So, um, cool to think about that too. Yeah. And I just looked it up. It is not, it's not available to stream anywhere. So you, you're going to have to go on Amazon and buy a used DVD of this bad boy. That is bizarre that it's not on Blu-ray. Cause that's a beloved movie. Yeah. Fantastic. And I think it was, I don't know if it was nominated for any Oscars, but it might've been, it might've been. I mean, it was, pretty critically acclaimed when it came out all right last film for our halloween movie marathon what do you got for your supernatural slash ghost movie mike thorne well again i wanted to have some sort of threads in my picks for some reason i don't know why i just, I just thought it would be kind of fun so i went with another victor halperin film so that's the director of white zombie the year after white zombie he released a 1933 film appropriately titled Supernatural. Why don't they come? Why don't they come? Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! I suppose you can bring me back after I'm dead. She may be more dangerous now than when they had her locked in a cell. Hammond wants our money. He murdered me. You are next. <laughs> This is uh, Hal Perrin working in an urban setting. So you get to see his really distinct eye for images applied to a totally different atmosphere. Um, the film begins with this uh, woman uh, mass murderer named Ruth Rogen, who is on death row in New York City for murdering 
three of her former lovers basically at an orgy gone evil. Um, and she has another living lover who is this kind of con man spiritualist named Paul who turned her into the police. Um, and he enters the narrative as well. Um, there's a doctor in the film who theorizes that when evil people die, their spirits live on, that their spirits exit their bodies to find new hosts and commit more crimes. Um, so to explore this theory, he obtains permission at Ruth's penitentiary uh, to experiment on her body after her execution. Um, she's executed by electric chair. His experiments also involve electricity in some interesting ways. So this character, Paul, reaches out to an heiress named Roma, claiming that her recently deceased twin brother, John, is trying to send her a message. Roma and her fiancé named Grant attend a seance performed by Paul. Paul deceives Roma to believe that the manager of her family estate killed her brother. Roma and Grant leave the seance and they visit this doctor, Dr. Houston, um, who is attempting to reanimate Rojan's corpse with electricity, at which time Rojan's spirit attempts to enter Roma's body. Eventually, Rojan's spirit does enter Roma's body, and the film becomes a kind of supernatural possession story, in a way. Um, again, it's beautifully visualized. The images are so striking. It's, it's just for the atmosphere alone, the way this film is drawing on the, the pronounced visual language of German expressionism. Um, and the novel things it's doing narrative, narratively with hybridizing... Um, the ghost story and the possession story in a way. And it's also, as far as I can tell, one of the earliest depictions of a woman mass murderer. So that's cool too. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So uh, highly recommend uh, Supernatural. I've heard after these two films that not many of Victor Halperin's films are really worth viewing, but I'd still like to explore his filmography because these two are just, to me, two of, Honestly, two of the greatest horror films ever made. So That's Supernatural from 1933. Another one that I have not seen. Coming with the deep cuts. And uh, yeah, just the premise alone. Wow. I mean, it sounds great. It's so good. And it's, it's so much fun at the end. The body swapping really allows the actors to chew the scenery. And um, yeah, it gets, it gets wild too. So. Uh, well, I'm not going to clap because it won't sound good on a podcast, but uh, if it did, I'd be clapping right now. You came up with five amazing picks and five real deep cuts. And I think that it's apparent to anybody listening that you know your horror. <laughs> and I think that that has to sell people on picking up Peel Back and See, which again is out October 29th. Go pick that up. Um, Mike, what's the best place that like, where do you want people to go to pick that up? Well, if you pick it up anywhere, I will be happy. It all, you know, it's all good with me. Um, but it's it's available directly through the publisher, um, Journalstone. You can also get it where books are sold um, through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, places like that. Um, so yeah, and and my two other books, Shelter for the Damned and Darkest Hours, same same deal, uh, same publisher, Journalstone for all three. Great publisher. Um, yeah, and all available where you usually would buy books. Going straight through the publisher is going to be better for everybody. So I will put a link to the show notes in there. So if you're interested in picking up Peel Back and See, and why wouldn't you be? 
jump into the show notes, pick that up. Uh, if you want to see more of Mike's work, you can go to MikeThornWrites.com where he's got uh, everything that he's involved in and go follow at MikeThornWrites on Twitter. Mike, thanks so much for coming on. You're an amazing guest. Is there anything else that uh, that people should see of yours or anything else that you want to plug while you get the time? Well, I think those are the big things. Yeah, I'm on uh, on uh, Twitter, so that's a good place to connect with me if you want to touch base um, on Goodreads, too. And those are the three books. Hopefully there will be more along the way. I'm doing a PhD, so I'm going to have to write a, a novel for my dissertation. So that will happen. <laughs> um, yeah, and thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. And you have given me some more titles to add to my watch list. So that's always fun. And just to recap what we've put on everyone else's watch lists, our exorcism films tonight were The Atticus Institute and Exorcist II The Heretic. Our witch films were Spellbinder and Witchfinder General. Zombie movies were The Night Eats the World and White Zombie. Our creature features were Uninvited and Revenge of the Creature. And finally, our ghost films were The Others and Supernatural. Once again, I'm giving away a copy of the 35th anniversary 1978 Halloween Blu-ray. If you want to win it, Check out Twitter for details, at Force5Pod. It's literally just liking and retweeting the post, so you don't have to do anything really to win. And I'll be announcing the winner next week on the show. If you have some Halloween recommendations for me, send them my way via Twitter or Instagram at Force5Podcast. Thanks for listening, and until next time, buy Mike Thorne's books, stay safe, stay sane, and have a happy Halloween. (laughs) 